Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. It's great to be back here. Uh, I think it was seven or eight years ago that I was sitting here with Frank Barco um, talking also about what's the potential of architecture. And I'm very happy to show you now a couple of years later what came out of being involved with this kind of search and question in my profession. Um, oh, also, there is a new book that just came out in case uh, <laughs> you're uh, interested. And actually, I wanted to give that to you. Um, <laughs> I forgot to give it to you earlier. Um, that's kind of a collection of the work that happened in the last 10, 12 years. Um, if you're looking into architecture and trying to find ways to expand the material of architecture into new media, into um, new forms of construction, um, and also into new ways of communicating architecture or decision-making that's going along. Um, we're also looking to different scales. Um, as Owen said earlier, sometimes the, you know, these projects work in a very small, maybe even art context, and we go all the way to urban planning schemes. It's not so much that we make that difference in our practice, but whenever these objects, projects, thoughts get confronted with the world outside of the office, then of course the discipline gets um, attached to it, depending on if it's shown in the de design context or in the architecture context or even in the art context. Quite often we start with the surface as a starting point, maybe because that's the first thing that we can touch and that's how we kind of feel um, the envelope of the environment around us um, as the immediate um, boundary to tackle. Um, that surface, which is of course a tactile um, and a haptic surface, a surface that has information, we talk about the structure and construction behind that surface and in front of it, even temporal aspects and how things change over time. So in front of and behind as much as before and after are important. And one of the starting points of this obsession with surfaces um, might be seen here in the first slide are these data protection patterns that I'm collecting for the last 20 years now. Um, it's very easy to collect because it comes for free to your house. Uh, and it's actually a very strategic ornament somehow that only has a function while it's in transit. It doesn't mean anything when it's still sitting where you know it's sent away from, and it has no meaning after it arrived at the right person. But in the meantime, you know, on the way in transit, that's when it really becomes um, efficient. And these patterns happen in a lot of things that you see every day on shipping slips on the backside of um, checks or when you get the secret PIN number from your bank. These patterns, and this is my research, and it might not be the right history of these patterns, but it goes back to 1900 or even earlier with the advent of carbon paper. You could write invoice, shipping slip, and copy of the invoice at the same time. So in some areas, like here, you had to block out or create a, a camouflage or confusion of information because you would write only once, which is kind of efficient in administration. You write only once and it gets kind of copied on the layers behind. But on the front, the one who actually delivers doesn't need to know how expensive the delivery is really, and other information as well. For those of you who still remember carbon paper and typewriters, that's I think where it <laughs> came from. Uh, you have uh, a form and you have copies, and if you use carbon paper quite a lot, that's kind of what happens, this overlay of numbers and letters and so forth. There is a company, or was a company in Berlin called uh, Berthold, and they were world leading in type and font development. They even developed Hebrew writing, you know, at the forefront of kind of making kind of a modern uh, written language 
language in, in Hebrew. At the same time, also, they developed all these kind of um, let sets and, and print types uh, for printing. And here you see some samples of that kind of printing stock. In 1913, they already had a whole book which was a collection of their funds, and there was already these data confusing patterns or data protection patterns. Um, data, some of them were called number cemeteries and so forth. Um, they were already offered as these kind of um, stems for forms like this. So you can imagine as an architect, you deal with quite similar issues. There's an envelope that protects between inside and outside, between private and public, between discrete and indiscreet, between um, exposed and concealed. Very similar to a building that also has an envelope that deals with public and private, between inside and outside, and so forth. Um, so issues of, let's say, control of certain moments of privacy in a time now which is so obsessed with data collecting and questioning what is actually privacy today what is um, available to other people, what do you expose of yourself. Um, maybe one of the last moments where this like, protection tool is still visible and has a materiality before everything moves into the digital world and then somehow it's invisible. Um, so you see some of these envelopes here and I'm starting with this uh, pattern because they became so, let's say, underlying. It became kind of primordial soup for our work. Not that each time we kind of refer directly to it, but you can understand, looking at the projects later, where this thinking and design process uh, comes from. So these are the patterns um, that I collected. Uh, you have really beautiful camouflage patterns like this one here, uh, numbers and letters, very organic ones. Um, these are names of cities, for example. Uh, when you zoom in, they become quite a whole universe of graphic design. Um, even logos of companies are used on inside of envelopes. They are used inside of envelopes because when you hold the envelope against the light, when it's still closed, you cannot really read what's written on a letter. So again, it's confusing the writing um, of, the, of the content inside. I show you now how we translate this pattern collection step by step from smaller scale into larger architecture. But the interest somehow is looking into these patterns and making them somehow available, making them into a one-to-one -one scale with the human body, making them inhabitable, and therefore also transforming a certain spatial understanding. This is an exhibition, uh, an installation we did at the Berlinische Gallery, which is the Berlin State Museum. And um, this was a found pattern that we enlarged into that scale and printed on carpet. Um, it doesn't have a repeat, and uh, so the single, uh, the ends are always kind of cut out in fringes. But this image somehow has this inverted envelope idea where um, the space completely is wrapped in this um, carpet with the pattern. But on a smaller scale, these small cubes here were, I think, even more important in this exhibition because when you look close at them, and there were 3D prints about this big, um, the rule was there was basically an endless pattern, but we took one kind of square cutout. The rule was that from one side you look into, uh, onto this cube, it has exactly the 2D pattern that we found. There were five different patterns, each of them looked different, so I'm choosing this one here. And we made a three-dimensional uh, three interpretation of that pattern uh, into the space, in this case, um, there was a certain layering of the pattern and then uh, zooming in and out and um, morphing from one layer to the other. So one side really had this 2D 
pattern. Once you walk around, it becomes a really complex three-dimensional skeleton, a space that you can like, imagine walking through and flying through um, a, a different form of, let's say, spatiality, complexity and spatiality um, that we explored. Some of them were done like this, some of them were just extruded, some of them actually had two patterns running through each other and creating a three-dimensionality. So different strategies how to create 3D from that 2D um, source material. Uh, this now is in Wolfsburg, a larger exhibition we designed for Volkswagen. Autostadt is the place where you go to pick up your car when you buy a Volkswagen, or you can go and pick up your car. It has a whole theme city, different pavilions, each brand. And one of the bigger buildings also has themed exhibitions. Um, we won this competition on mobility and sustainability. And we started with this um, recycling triangle, which was maybe the first moment when we understood that recycling or sustainability, consuming has something to do with the future. Um, and of course, nowadays, we understand that the complexity of what is right and wrong, what we do today, we think is correct, you know, in terms of being sustainable or being careful about the future, might already be overwritten tomorrow by a different understanding. So these dead ends, this complex network of dependencies, all of that, turn into this kind of artificial forest or thicket that you see here and became that space. But I think now you can understand how these early st um, studies and uh, three-dimensional, let's say, prototypes turn into um, a space that you can really walk through and becomes um, um, inhabitable and in a scale that uh, becomes kind of architectural. Uh, the whole space is embedded with information. We work together with Art and Com, where you can have, you know, let's say a very atmospheric understanding of this topic, but you can also go very deep into the content on each of these um, stations here. One step larger is a dining hall that we actually built a little earlier, but I'm going step by step in terms of scale. Um, this is in Karlsruhe, a dining hall that sits, and I'll jump back quickly, at the kind of line between the city itself and the forest that's on the north. Karlsruhe has a very, let's say, iconic um, town planning scheme. It's a radial city that all is focused on the tower here at the Karlsruhe Castle. So one of the last rings, um, you have the university and the pedagogical university and the technical university all kind of gave up their small dining halls and uh, made one big one. So you see this, again, skeleton understanding of an architectural space, and this is how it looked uh, when it was built. And here, I think, um, the input uh, of this uh, skeleton thinking, ideas of enveloping, which means a continuous surface that you have running around the building, inside and outside, which means denying or that's redesigning a lot of detailing that you usually expect for architects. Let's say a metal flashing here or a different material where it's raining. All ask for rethinking um, the construction process or the construction methodology of this building. We thought it could be concrete or steel when we did the competition, but both of them became too expensive and um, didn't work within the budget that was given to us. So we made a lot of research and developed this technology, which now seems to be a prototype also for public buildings. Um, and it was a third of the cost of concrete and steel. It's a timber construction with a polyurethane coating. Um, inside you also see, even if it's a skeleton, you see this wrapping, you see this enveloping of space um, to create somehow um, yeah, something that um, yeah, 
envelopes you basically uh, and, and runs from ceiling to roof to walls all around. The same on the outside as well. Um, this timber, which is uh, a different form of timber than what we learned in the school, um, is a laminated timber. It comes in plates that's two meter by 40 meter in like seven centimeter thick um, steps. And you kind of prefabricate it and bring it on site. It has a couple of nice side effects. The construction site is quite short, um, or the construction time is quite short. Um, you also, well, we had to build a concrete block where the kitchen was in terms of fire issues, but then the rest of the building is this timber cage that just sits on the building. And then you put it together, and then you add a three millimeter spray on polyurethane that seals it and makes it weatherproof. Um, the advantage is you don't really have to retreat it every three to four years um, that you would have to do if it's a normal timber construction. You also save some wood where it's structurally, um, uh, where you have to use the wood as a structural element because you don't need the two centimeters of uh, weathering that's usually um, necessary. And also you don't need this details, uh, the metal flashing and all of that because it just sealed the whole building with its polyurethane coating. So again, it becomes more of an object rather than a tectonic piece that is put together. And you see these you know, very precise lines because of that um, technology that we invented. Remember this technology later when I show you the last project in Sevilla because that's how we learned about, or that's how we actually developed that technology with our engineers in a timber construction company and that made us uh, in the end uh, build the Sevilla project with this, let's say, technology in mind. I'm staying in Karlsruhe for another project that we opened this year, which is um, the festivity pavilion for the 300-year anniversary of Karlsruhe. And, oops, and here again, you see how the radial city planning, which is kind of the iconic, um, uh, yeah, the iconic part of Karlsruhe, becomes uh, what we started from when we designed the pavilion itself. Here you see the castle again and how this radial baroque city planning uh, became so dominant. Karlsruhe is one, was one of the, let's say, very interesting uh, town, uh, how do you say, like if, uh, the founding of a town, which was quite liberal because it allowed different religions to um, live together in this one city. It was quite open to um, different uh, groups in, in, in society. And that's also why now the German um, highest court, uh, Verfassungsgericht, the highest court uh, is placed next to the castle here because it has this history of, um, let's say, democracy in Germany. So this is the pavilion that we designed. And it takes a couple of these issues that I mentioned before into the design process. So the grid and let's say the circular focal point of the castle moves somehow to different focal points for different individuals. So moving basically that grid from um, let's say monarchic uh, one focus point to a multi-focus point um, structure. And it's sitting behind the castle. We had to watch for some let's say important view lines, side lines through the landscape, uh, landmark landscape park behind it. And this is now the photo from the lake, which is one of the important um, viewing axes. So the half circle, how it was designed, was leaning to one side to allow the view to the main castle tower. And then you see the details of um, the pavilion itself. It was from the very beginning 
announced as a temporary pavilion, and it all, it's actually coming down in about two weeks. Um, so we collaborated with a timber construction company, the same one we did the dining hall before, because they can reuse the whole timber when it's coming down. So only the steel joints will be melted back into you know some other process and, and building parts, <coughs> and the, the whole timber can be reused in their whole production line um, that they usually you know uh, is their main business. Uh, and this was part of the concept also for this um, project. What is quite, let's say, easy to achieve is this kind of crowding culture because that part behind the, uh, the castle is kind of the meeting point for the whole city. There are two universities on both sides. The park is completely packed um, in summer or even like in spring and fall with people hanging out in the garden. And the pavilion somehow just reinforced that dynamic. Um, there were events, 400 events for the last three months, constantly day and night um, something was going on. And it really became uh, a, a, a new interpretation of what culture meant in uh, the moment of the 300 year anniversary. So some concert here, um, more festivities also here. Um, I'm just showing you some impressions of what was going on. The German president came and the minister of uh, Baden-Württemberg. Um, some views at night when it was empty. At the evening of the opening, the city also had these light beams. They were not meant for our pavilion. Actually, they were meant for the castle and the light show in front of the castle. But when you went on the backside, that's what you saw. And it really projects that radial grid even into the sky and um, into the kind of endlessness of the universe. Now I'm jumping to Hasselt. And um, Hasselt in Belgium is somehow uh, as a project related to the projects that you saw here, but it's also timber construction in a different scale and uh, a little bit more complicated. Hasselt um, has a very, let's say, intact uh, medieval town center here, and as many uh, cities in that scale, they have their ring roads and they had a big train station and a big cargo area that moved away and West Aid won the competition for a whole urban plan um, along the train tracks and now there's a whole city development along that train track. We built this courthouse with R2O architects and Lenz Us from Hasselt. Uh, and this is a photo here. The parking garage is by West 8. There's a platform that's two floors high and it will continue along the line of the train tracks. Ours is the first one now starting with this kind of development along the trains. This is the aerial view, the parking garage here the train station here, and this whole development that will run along um, the train tracks. Hasselt comes from hazelnut trees. And the two hazelnut trees that you see here are the logo of the city. And it's nice that you see two, because two already starts to talk about a community, or starts about two people, starts about a dialogue. It's not a single object. Um, and there's an interesting, let's say, parallel maybe to the city skyline where you have always two high points from important moments in the history of Hasselt. You see two medieval towers, then you see two towers from the 60s, um, which was the town hall uh, and the technical town hall. And then West 8 also asked for two towers in the new development along the city. I don't know if this was conscious or not, but that's somehow what we discovered. Um, and I think that's a nice kind of parallel to a very specific moment of Hasselt. Um, the competition we won, uh, we had also two high-rises, more of, let's say, a reference maybe to the hazelnut trees, or the two hazelnut trees, but also when you think of 
cargo areas around train stations. You have these huge metal beams. You have these scaffolds. You have these um, trusses. So it's maybe an ambivalent structure that takes, on one hand, the tree um, reference, on the other hand, also this industrial reference along the train tracks. And here you see some views from the interior. Um, it's a public-private partnership project where the city and Eurostation, which is the train society of Belgium, um, was developing the project. And the Ministry of Justice is renting it for 30 years. So the budget was extremely limited because, or for that kind of building, extremely limited, because in case in 30 years the ministry is moving out, the building has to work on the normal market for office buildings um, in that city. There are three parts. On this side, you have um, the courtrooms. Uh, here you have the offices and the restaurant. And in this part, you have um, the library and some rooms for the <coughs> um, Department of Justice of the university. But they can also use the courtrooms as their lecture rooms uh, for seminars while there is no court running. So it has an interesting shift of time sharing and um, space sharing inside the building. This is also timber, but only the exterior structure is timber. Um, the interior is all concrete, and we had to actually use the grid of the parking garage inside our building. But again, the whole cage around has this timber construction, even all the way up to the um, 13th floor. I'm showing two more um, projects just quickly to show you that you know, we entered kind of a different scale, but just more of a reference than a real um, project description. This is Dusseldorf, this is the Rhine Valley, and uh, we have two high-rise projects right now. One is in, uh, next to a hospital, which is a housing high-rise, and this one here is again similar to the project I showed before, next to the train station, a renewal project around the train station area. This was the former cargo part of the German post service. Um, so this is the post service area with this high rise here, a hotel down here, a whole development uh, with a public space in the center, um, and a night view to that. And this is on the other side of the river, uh, more a green kind of area, a park with a couple of urban residences, an urban park here, the river is kind of where you are, um, and here we have six floors of doctor's offices, kind of private hospitals, and then on top of it is apartments. Oh yeah, here you see again the old hospital here, this is the River Rhine, and this is kind of a new park, um, living park, park living <laughs> that is developed. I think more interesting and more I can show you because it's already realized is a housing project we developed in Jena. Um, again, here you see kind of a, let's say, relationship to the urban life, um, as I described it with the temporary pavilion, but also the dining hall was meant to become a social place for different parts of the university, art school, um, music school, technical university, pedagogical school, they all created a new dining hall where the disciplines could mingle and mix and maybe uh, more comes out of it. Um, but the idea was that you don't have to separate uh, departments anymore, but there are moments of, let's say, creating a, a certain tension or a certain uh, mix of um, exchange. And something similar might happen here in Jena, this is a very beautiful landscape, quite hilly. Uh, this is where Carl Zeiss um, company is, where the optical lenses are produced for cameras and for eye eyewear. <coughs> and our client for this project is called uh, 
housing cooperative called size so they have their name um, and they're the biggest one in Jena of course they own about 6,000 apartments of socialist housing blocks but also now they want to um, improve um, areas of the city that were underdeveloped until recently um, here you have the oldest part of town which is the town square with the town hall there is uh, the second oldest town uh, townhouse which had a restaurant and some housing our client got about two million from the city to help uh, renovate this. It has a beautiful baroque wooden staircase, for example, and so forth, to make it kind of uh, yeah, uh, financially viable to do something with this building. And it's part of that uh, that's a little complex where you have the oldest one and then our four buildings creating a somehow semi. No, it's actually a public space, but um, it's kind of more of an intimate space next to the public um, town hall um, and, and a market square in the center of the city. Here you see, again, the market, this oldest house with a little passage, and then our four buildings creating more of an intimate urban square with these little gaps that you can walk through. And we wanted to keep a certain intimacy that feels like being part of a medieval town center, at the same time introducing contemporary architecture and show that there's is an interesting dialogue between the old and the new. I'm showing a couple of samples um, how the project developed. And this one here was a design that the client got from a different architect, and they did not like it at all, and that's why they came to us. And here you see kind of a private uh, closed square. You see this large building block. Um, there was no charm, there was no relationship really to the context. And I'm showing you step by step how we started to break this down um, to make it into smaller units, to make it kind of relational to the urban context. Um, at the same time, this is medieval. This one here was a 19th century boulevard, so there also had to be a jump in scale somehow, but we felt we had to mediate more than um, creating a, complete, a completely new gesture that is um, not relating to any of those. And so step by step, you see how we broke that down into kind of puzzle pieces um, and uh, made even the view of the, let's say, roof landscape part of a design as an important part of the design. Here you see how they break up and start to shift, um, figuring out how the floor plan works inside. Uh, it's the main branch now of this cooperative bank with three floors in the center building but then the rest is all housing and has um, shops and smaller, let's say, more public program on the ground floor. So here now you start to see these gaps that you can walk through, um, studies for the facade. Uh, this is a big model that the city built and we put that in and you see um, how that kind of relates to the context. Um, quite difficult floor plans because we always had to put the chorus to the neighbor walls uh, creating these apartments onto different sites, but here you see the walk through the old building and then cutting through the other ones. It's not that high, it's only like six, seven floors high, and the highest point here, the other ones are much lower, and then of course there's a parking garage running through all of them. Now, looking at the chamfered buildings, we try to echo that in the patches that we have on the facade, and some of these diagonals, of course, are also structural. Um, and that runs even into the plaza design or into the ground floor. Again, the envelope idea that you can see comes back in um, where 
these larger shapes flip, out, flip around and you know, become the floor. Some of them turn up again and become a little green area. Um, it's something that really you know, uh, embraces you when you walk through it. So this is uh, an old building, Baroque building. Here you walk through into the little courtyard and figure out how close you can go um, dealing with the fire issues because the distances needed to be precise in terms of windows and fire. Um, and I think we always need five meters in Germany, you know, that fire jumps from one building to the other. So that was quite tricky uh, to figure out how that works. <coughs> a handicapped ramp that we had to bring in um, and at night how it changes the relationship also with the ground. This is the foyer of the bank building, so even there we could bring that language as part of the interior and a view from the main street with the trees in front of it. This is um, an interesting concept where this housing cooperative did their first development in the center of the city. Usually they developed new areas around the city. Here, the city really wanted to bring in housing back into the heart of the city to keep it alive even at night or in, on weekends. Um, it's rent controlled. Um, you have to become member of that bank or of that cooperative and then you get you know, to apply for these apartments and they have a certain, um, let's say, stable rent um, that comes with being part of that membership um, program of the cooperative. Here you have offices, up here you have apartments, you see some of the uh, balconies with floor, uh, flowers again. Um, they have their little lodges inside. So it's not really making a difference between what is an office, what is an apartment, um, but uh, in the end you will see the fine-tuning with what's happening behind, you know, with curtains or what's happening on the balconies. Um, the appropriation starts to happen now. Now I'm jumping to Berlin and I'm showing you a larger development that we won last year and we hope to start um, constructing next year. It's uh, also a building that is for the people. Um, it's a shopping mall that has, or they call it home for brands and experience, that has an indoor skydiving and then a surf wave. It brings artificial nature, in, or it brings nature into the city, makes it kind of artificial nature, but creating a certain lifestyle of activities, of sports, of being kind of involved into a building complex next to Alexanderplatz. Um, there's also a hotel on top of it. We have this energy cut that runs on the level of the S-Bahn here, and when you drive by by S-Bahn, you can look into this big surf wave um, space that is here. I'll show you kind of the conceptual diagrams here. <laughs> it's a multi-brand shopping center where all different cool brands come together, and this tension between the different brands creates, uh, let's say, an energy that uh, happens to create this crack of activities on a higher level, which then relates also to the Tower of Berlin, uh, the TV Tower, or the elevated S-Bahn. And this is then how the certain, um, let's say, spatial or sectional uh, displays happened. The plan itself is, you know, quite filling out the plug. Uh, this is a small square, the S-Bahn, and this is where Alexanderplatz is. You see areas of, let's say, more open, um, area, space, uh, shop concepts. Um, this is the surf area, this is the indoor skydiving. So there's an air tunnel that runs vertically and you can fly for you know, a minute for, I don't know, 50 euros or something. Um, so it really kind of brings in certain activities into the city. And here you see the cut that runs through it. This is more of an open floor plan, while the other areas are more shops or different, let's say more uh, let's say enclosed atmospheric containers inside that building. 
So this is the main attraction, I guess, where you have the surf wave, you have a seating area, um, we have a view to the city, you can open the facade in summer. <coughs> There's the hotel up here with direct view also down to the surf wave. So it kind of becomes a weird mix between being a public space and being quite often a commercial you know, um, uh, entertainment complex. But it creates, uh, let's say, a dynamic that works as much for Berliners as for tourists that come in that have a special experience in the city. And this is one of the major economies that Berlin has, um, and an important economy to make the city kind of financially um, grow. So in this case, it's a very important factor for, um, uh, let's say, a prosperous Berlin, if you like. And then this is the main atrium space with different stages hanging in there. And this is this glass tunnel with the flying um, people in the glass tube, the indoor skydiving. This can also be used uh, at nighttime, for example, for training for um, parachute uh, jumpers, I don't know how you call them, parachuters, um, or even for uh, pilots that might have to do these kind of things. Um, so there is an understanding that it's on one hand an entertainment place, but on the other hand also has certain, let's say, educational or training, um, training uh, moments in it. And this is the back part of it. Now, Georgia. And this is maybe our largest project that we built so far, not because each of the projects are so big, because we have all these small interventions like acupunctural projects that are reshaping this country. And also tourism, I think, is a big issue here. Um, after Georgia separated from Russia and had certain problematic zones with Ossetia and Abkhazia, um, tourism is one of the major um, economic factors for the country. On the other hand, you have a lot of transit from Azerbaijan running through Georgia to the Black Sea. Um, and of course, there is food that is developing. Again, wine, it's one of the oldest wine cultures in the world. It has uh, fantastic food uh, produce, and um, this is something that can be made available again and needs that infrastructure as well. So with uh, the presidency of Saakashvili, there was an incredible dynamic introducing also public infrastructure as part of an experience of Georgia, and we were one of the architects that were part of that um, change. So one of the first projects is this um, pavilion and structure in Batumi, that's on the Black Sea coast. And uh, a lot of these projects happened because if somebody wants to invest or make a large investment, let's say building a pipeline or building a larger company or something like that, um, they were kind of asked to also build a public structure um, like a cafe or like um, something that is kind of for the people to enjoy the cities. So this is one of these projects um, that were kind of side effects of a larger investment somewhere else. Um, kind of a strategy also to bring certain, let's say, infrastructure set off so normal for us, you know, go and have a coffee somewhere or go to a supermarket. Um, all of these things were just beginning to be introduced to Georgia. So this is how it sits in this small square. All these towers became, um, uh, were realized later. This is by Michele Lucchi. Then you have um, a couple of four-star or five-star hotels here. <coughs> this is a university tower. This is a, a viewing tower. You have the high Caucasian mountains in the back. So an incredible dynamic. Um, but to me, um, as a place to attract certain, let's say, you know, tourism on the Black Sea coast, 
not so much for maybe for Western Europeans, but for the whole region um, around Georgia, which is mostly Islamic or quite, um, yeah, mostly Islamic. Georgia is Christian Orthodox, so there is alcohol, there is gambling, and etc. Um, and that becomes kind of, uh, let's say, uh, an interest point for uh, countries around it. And you don't have to fly another three hours to Italy or France. So it, it has a certain potential, um, or a lot of potential. And somebody also liked our tower so much, they copied it on the facade, so you kind of see this kind of <laughs> rippling effects that are happening. Now, this is Batumi, which is here. We go down to the border, um, and this is the border station to Turkey. Um, I think maybe one of our most beautiful building sites that we ever built. Georgia stops here, Turkey starts here. And this is how Georgia says hello or goodbye to people who are traveling to a church or leaving it. I think it's an incredible gesture and I hardly know any other country that really takes care of how their border station looks like. Um, it's meant to be a place that is creating a certain architectural uh, expectation for the rest of the country, of course. Um, it's also meant to be a place to meet rather than to separate because on that tower, or let's say on that place, you can even swim. You can swim all the way onto the border. In Turkey, it's too steep. You cannot really do that anymore. Um, so it's already, or it was always, a quite important um, beach place for that part of Georgia. And on top of the checkpoints, you have conference rooms that you can rent. Um, you have these viewing platforms that you can walk up and look over see, um, the Black Sea. So it's actually a little bit like conference hotels in airports. You can rent the spaces for conferences, maybe for a family meeting. You can uh, use the terraces. So it's actually a place where you come together, you negotiate, to party, you know, you meet, rather than a borderline that tries to separate. And I think that's quite a unique way to look at a situation like this. Again, you see here the meeting rooms on the checkpoints, the meeting rooms here, some terraces that you can look out. Of course, there's shopping. <clears throat> a view from the conference room onto the Black Sea coast. Then we jump all the way up from the sea level to 1,700 meters in Mestia. It's a UNESCO site. Um, it's one of the very small towns that are protected because of their stone towers. And to get there, um, you either drive nine hours by car. Now I think it's about six and a half because the roads are redone. Or you fly three times a week with a small propeller plane um, across the mountains, somewhere through here, actually quite only 30 meters above ground, just to fly into the valley again, to land here, and this is the airport. You have the small towers of Mestia. Um, this is the airport, 280 square meters, so it's not very big. But you see the relationship somehow of that building with the stone towers that you see back here, storage or protection towers um, in this high village. Um, our design is kind of like three fingers. One is the tower, one is check-in and coffee, and the other one is kind of security and waiting and lounge. And that's it, like quite efficient um, airport. And here you see the towers again. We also built a small town hall in that little village. And this is how it looks at night after they took it on. Uh, and a police station. Also, these buildings were all part of this renewal of public administrations becoming places of contemporary architecture, kind of open, friendly, uh, rather than you know buildings that try to conceal, that try to um, that had kind of a 
sad history in police administration in Georgia before. All this reform um, made that profession into one of the high-profile professions in Georgia, while before it was quite corrupt. So a lot of transformation really um, started to engage the whole country. And one of the, let me get some water. <clears throat> one of the big moves was to also distribute this kind of uh, projects all over the country and not only focus it on in Tbilisi, which is the capital. They're moving the parliament from Tbilisi, which is here, to Kutaisi, which is over here. For many years, actually, they built larger meeting rooms all over the country, and each other, you know, every uh, parliament meeting had to be done in different parts of the country. So each part really became uh, part of the transformation um, and the modernization of the country. Now they're building the first highway from Tbilisi to Batumi. That takes now about six hours. With the highway, it might take only three hours after a while. Um, and now they're building rest stops along the highway, and in some parts they're building rest stops where there is no highway yet. But with the highway comes also a supermarket, which is something that's also only now available for the last four or five years. Um, it, there comes um, an arts and crafts market, maybe local farmers can show their products and, and sell their products. So it actually brings infrastructure to different parts of the country and shows that the whole country is part of a large transformation. It's not that large a country, it's only three and a half million people and it's as big as Bavaria. I don't know how that compares to something here in England. But um, there's a concern that really take the whole country um, into this development. This is a rest stop that we built in Gori. Um, here cafe, supermarket, arts and crafts market and um, food. And then this is the gas station here. This is where they show their products um, and local farmers can show their uh, um, yeah, produce. Here we have the shopping supermarket and then the cafe on this side. So th this was quite a little bit of an empty moment, but you can see how it either brings exposure to the local market, uh, local market, at the same time also it's a window into the local arts and crafts market and the culture from that area. There were two different rest stops on each side. One we built with a Georgian company and for a Georgian oil company, which is all concrete, um, on-site concrete. The other one we built was with an Azerbaijan oil company and they used a Turkish construction company. And this is all steel trusses and prefab elements put on, um, onto the structure. So even while it's actually more or less the same design, um, the way how we then started dialogue with different companies and talked to different, you know, about different solutions, how to realize this project was an interesting process. I don't even know which one I like better. I think both of them are quite interesting ways to translate that design into um, the, build, the, build, the build building. Um, here you see, how these kind of segments are then following these contours. Um, and this is how we mostly worked in Georgia. We designed our, you know, our, our projects and then started to deal with local architects, um, with local construction companies. Um, and this dialogue was really part of an interesting exchange process that happened. <clears throat> the last project I'm showing from Georgia is this tower that we built in the Black Sea. Um, it's more or less just a sculpture that sits now lonely in the water. 
it was, there was a plan to build a new harbor and a town with 500,000 people around that uh, kind of a new metropolis for Georgian scale. And um, it was stopped by the government that came after, but it might just sit there and wait until the idea becomes valuable again. There's one harbor right now which becomes too small. The Black Sea in this area is quite difficult for larger ships because it's a very flat sea, so you can hardly really get close to the border. But what's happening right now is actually not much, except that this was kind of the pin to declare the beginning of the construction of this new town. Um, there was a kind of a youth hotel from the 80s that was already there. But then you have a boulevard and a small town hall that is already built, kind of waiting to be activated for a future metropolis at some point. Um, yeah. Some images from that structure. <coughs> so you cannot walk up, you can just walk out and look back at the city or look um, out onto the water or just sit there and there are some fishermen here, there's always one sitting there. Um, and there are some tourists too. When I was there, there were three Polish architecture students um, coming and visiting the piece. So it's, it's quite remote, but um, I think it has a certain romanticism about future or let's say about a vision um, that is on hold, which uh, I think you can feel in that structure. And then there are some night views as well. It was produced in Turkey, um, brought in, in segments and then put together on site and create that structure. And this is now a night view with light. So now I'm coming to Seville, which is maybe our most ambitious project or the most complex project. Um, a competition we won in 2004, and that was uh, inaugurated in 2011. It took a little longer because it, it was quite complex. Uh, we started less than a year after we won the competition with construction, and then the complexities came in with structural engineering, with finding the right way to uh, detail it, um, also dealing with archaeology was quite difficult, but altogether it really became um, a project that not only works well for Seville, but has a couple of, um, let's say, um, effects uh, on a global scale, which I think is quite rewarding when you see how much work you put into a project like this. You see some um, images, how it sits there right now. Um, it's a little higher than the buildings, or it's somehow, you know, same height and then a little higher in some areas. You have this huge canopy roof. There's a market and some restaurants on the ground floor, archaeology in the basement, and then up here, a restaurant and a walk um, on top of it. This is how Seville looked like in the 70s. Um, the river actually went this way. In the late 80s, they cut the river direct uh, from this point to this point shut it off here and connected this into a dead-end uh, water. And so this area became the expo site in the, for the 92 Expo. And this is the medieval town center, um, supposedly the largest one in Europe that we have. Oops, that's not a good resolution. <coughs> Our project sits here in the very center of it, here. So this is the medieval downtown. You have the southern part, which is quite well developed, or in 2004 when the competition happened. This is where the main shopping is, um, the town hall, the bullfight ring, the cathedral, the, the castle, the big park. The northern part was a little shady. That changed completely. This is like the main uh, whatever nightlife area now um, with nice restaurants. 
This is now called Soho of Seville, um, with a lot of shops that developed. All this was kind of hoped for by the remodeling of urban space in the city of Seville, and this of course, this of course became the largest of these projects. So in a way, um, it is a, a bridge building between the southern part and the northern part. So on that scale, it has very local effects. Then, of course, Seville wanted to compete with other Spanish cities like Valencia or Barcelona, who all had their like, contemporary buildings. And then on a larger like, international scale, it wanted to attract tourism, but also economy and show the innovation factor that the city has. There's Airbus, um, there are a couple of really important industries in Seville, um, but nothing really proved to kind of or wasn't really seen as part of a contemporary city that Seville would provide. So um, the space here, you see you know, some larger buildings always embedded in this very dense medieval fabric um, have defined these larger areas. It wasn't a square like a Plaza Mayor or Plaza Real. It was always an institution. <coughs> there was a smaller cathedral, uh, a smaller church and cloister before, then that expanded and they took down urban fabric from the medieval times. Then the cloister was erased and they built this food market um, that was taken down in one part in the 50s. In the 70s, the other part was taken down, then it was a parking lot. So it was always some in building or institution that defined that space rather than just an empty space. I'll show you some images of that later. Um, this is how it sits now in the city center. This is a bridge by Calatrava, built in 92, but nothing really happened since 92, and this is now 12 years later. <clears throat> this is a view from top, the skywalk with people, you know, you can overlook the city. There's a restaurant and a cafe up here. And then Shadow, which was, I think, the first idea that we had when we entered the competition, how to create a public space in the 21st century in Seville, which is extremely hot. Shade was the first material we thought had to be brought to that site. You see again how it sits in the very center of these kind of important routes going through the downtown of Seville. And this was the situation that uh, we found when the competition was launched. Um, the market that was before there uh, was a kind of walled-in city inside the city. Um, that part was taken down in the 50s to create the endpoint of a bus line that you see these buses here. This part was taken down in the 70s because the city grew so quickly um, that they had to move the market outside of the city fabric uh, of the of the medieval city fabric to feed the city. Um, it became a parking lot for about 30 years. Then the decision was made to build a parking garage four floors into the ground. The walls were built 40 meters deep. Earth was taken out and all of a sudden um, you have a beautiful, let's say, Roman layout of the city with mosaics and oil lamps in front of you. And that's when the whole development was stopped. And the city asked or started thinking about how to use that window into the history of Seville as an experience for everybody. Um, but on the other hand, how to bring back urban life to that space as well. This was the brief for the competition. It was an ideas competition rather than um, a realization competition. <clears throat> so on one hand, history. On the other hand, bringing back life, but also thinking about what is urban space or public space in, in the future, in the near future. Um, I think the intelligence of the project was 
already there when the city launched the strategy how to do it. Um, and this may be also part of why it's a project that fits so well in this architecture and freedom series. Um, the city took the pressure away for finding a project that could be realized. So it was all about finding ideas. Um, the first phase was completely open, anonymous, worldwide. And of, from all the entries, they selected 10 completely different projects for that site. There was no real program, only that you keep kind of the archaeology and that you bring back about 70 market stands in, you know, back to that space. <coughs> and the rest was open to proposals. Um, these 10 proposals looked like a huge Sonde Pompidou sitting in the center of the city, or kind of a jungle forest with undulated floors, minimal plaza with three high rises, um, a kind of a fun palace machine structure, um, a very simple triangulated uh, roof to create shadow for a local market, um, hours, and the rest I can't remember really. Um, so all the 10 projects were invited to Seville. We presented these projects to each other and also in public forum to everybody who was interested in the city. All the drawings and texts were available on the internet. And for the second phase, we could see how people started to discuss these different projects. Um, I think it was also important to um, follow, you know, it was important that people could follow the different possibilities and the, the different proposals that were available. And the city could also test what had support um, in the, you know, <laughs> with, the, with the citizens, and um, which maybe had the potential to have the support to be built afterwards. <laughs> so uh, we were lucky enough that ours was enthusiastically discussed. Of course, there were always some people who criticized it, but it had extreme support um, on all level, in public hearings, but also in <coughs> on the internet, in this blog, in this kind of guest book that they created. And I think this was also part why we won in the end. Of course, we also had the best design, but um, at the same time, it really, um, there was some kind of echo um, and, and already started to become emotional um, uh, on the side of, uh, of, the, of the people from Seville. And I think only that's somehow why there was no shock after you know, the competition was decided because people could already see what are the alternatives, what are the potentials, and what made sense and what didn't make sense. Rather than you have an anonymous competition, all of a sudden there's a winner, and then everybody goes like, where does this come from? And I think this process somehow um, was quite, uh, for me, important to see, and it was quite important also for our design to be fine-tuned in that second phase because we could see where people became, or comments were, uh, telling us to be more cautious in some areas or where we could actually push a little more in other areas. Um, I think it helped for the quality of the result of our project as much as it helped the understanding um, uh, for people who watched the whole process. So jumping back to the history of this site, this is the part that was taken down in the 50s. This part was taken down in the 70s, and here you see how it looks. I think today we would try everything to save this, but in the 70s it was all about cars and parking, and um, this is old shit, let's get it, <laughs> let's get it out. Um, I think part of the streets were still like sand streets, so Seville, even the 70s or early 80s, still was quite... I don't, I don't want to call it African, but it, like it was quite, you know, it was kind of a sandy, a sandy area of, um, of um, 
of Spain. When you go a little outside of, of Seville to El Rocio, you still have this kind of very rural, sandy streets, buildings like a very kind of uh, strong anchoring into the landscape of, this, um, of, the, of the countryside. So this was the parking for the last 30 years. And so you can imagine how this black hole that sits there in the center of the city really doesn't do anything. Um, if this is the successful part, the southern part of Seville, nobody really walks across this into the northern part. So this kind of bridging of um, a flow of um, pedestrians, of let's say shops that also want to be you know, uh, visited, that want to be, that want to prosper on the other side, all of that really um, happened with that development. <clears throat> in the process of designing it, we started with the roof in all kinds of scales and dimensions um, and, and geometries, and this kind of more undulated shape in the end was the one that always looked the most relaxed in that space in relationship to this quite heterogeneous um, neighborhood that surrounded. So we developed different layers to fit this program in. Um, some references that were important for us, for example, these huge trees on a neighboring plaza, kind of a grown version of what we built, or the undulated stone roof um, of the cathedral that is somehow echoed in our project, or even when you go into the cathedral and see the structure becoming the space-defining element, that's also a reference to our project here. <coughs> so the layering of the different programs is archaeology here, food market and some restaurants, then the elevated plaza as the roof for this ground floor program, and then the roof structure with the restaurant <coughs> and the skywalk. The design actually worked, uh, <laughs> worked the other way around. We started to create a certain shape, uh, somehow that related to the neighborhood. And then we had to bring down the forces in very selected parts where we were allowed to go into the archaeology. Um, there were some areas that were highly kind of protected and that were researched before the competition started. So in some areas we were allowed to get in and that's how these kind of parasols, these mushrooms as they're called now in Seville, are developed. Then <clears throat> we have this Frindel structure to bridge archaeology. This is the archaeology museum now, um, down here. This is the food market and this is the structure here. It's 150 meters, 150 meters long about 35 meters high and 75 meters wide. So it's quite a large structure. We worked with Arab engineers on this project and Finforest Merg is a timber construction company. It's not an, let's say, efficient grid that we used in terms of bringing the loads radial down into the stems. We wanted to have a confrontation between an orthogonal endless grid that is built inside of an invisible envelope of this kind of mushrooms, but we had to constantly change that envelope <coughs> because of landmark issues, make it smaller here or make it wider here, um, structural engineers less load here, more, I don't know, more span height on this side. So this was kind of massaged constantly in the process even after, you know, we won the competition uh, by developing it further. <coughs> and then by looking into how we can build this thing, and everything that you see beige that's running here is again this laminated wood with polyurethane coating that I showed you in the dining hall in the beginning. We compared steel to glass fiber reinforced concrete, timber with coating, timber without coating. It was always that version that survived these kind of evaluation processes in terms of cost development. Steel in 2004 was uncalculable. 
because of China, who just like, bought all that steel. <clears throat> Noise pollution during construction period. Um, at some point, the city asked us to look into steel because their ship wharf had no ship to build, so maybe they could actually build this parasol in steel. Didn't work. Expansion, construction, heat and cooling off, um, fire behavior, uh, earthquake behavior, etc., etc. So it was a whole set of parameters that led us back to the polyurethane on timber. And here, this polyurethane has really two um, interesting effects. One is it protects the wood so you don't have to retreat it continuously. At the same time, when you cover it with, tim uh, with polyurethane, the timber can be used until the very edge as a structural element. Otherwise, you need these two centimeters that kind of can rot and can weather before the timber really can be used as a structural element. <coughs> so it's also a lot of saving of material and therefore load, etc., etc. So step by step, we get closer to how to build this, how to element it, how to make it into a build project. You see these huge plates. Um, the wood comes from Finland. It's shipped to near Munich, then compressed, um, cut, and uh, also the steel joints are put together into this element. If the timber with the polyurethane is one innovation that is, let's say, interesting and important, then suppose it's the largest timber construction in the world. <coughs> These details are another point of interesting innovation because the forces that go from one element to the other were so high that you cannot just bring it you know, at the edge of that wood from one to the other. You had to bring it deep into the timber to um, distribute the load in larger areas. So these kind of fork-like steel rods take the load into large areas, so all of that can actually take the force. And in order to do that, the steel rods had to be glued into the timber rather than be like, screwed in. And that also makes that one of the largest bond technology or glued buildings in the world. You see the steel rods here, you see the glue around it. This is the laminated timber and then the polyurethane coating. That's kind of the structure of the whole project. We had to test how the glue reacts also in high temperature moments. Um, and the, the glue has a performance rate of 70 degrees Celsius. But if you glue it into the, if you glue the steel joint into the timber and you take that whole thing into a temperature chamber and you heat that whole thing up to 80 degrees, the performance temperature of the glue also goes up to 80 degrees. So you can do that one time. So we hope now with the 80 degrees we are safe for at least the next 100 years of climate change. Um, but that, that should work. That's called a tempering process of that glue, which is now maybe six, eight, eight nine years on the market, uh, developed by the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany. So here you see the lamination process, you see the cutout, um, these elements, the gluing in of these steel elements. Um, it's shipped them to Seville, <coughs> outside of Seville in these big large halls. Um, it's coated with polyurethane, then brought onto the construction site. Um, these are steel joints. This was also part of the whole negotiation process between the structural engineers and the construction company. Arab calculated maybe 40,000 different steel joints. And then the company said, well, we can maybe build 4,000 different steel joints. And then we have to see, you know, which are over-calculated or like, you know, how that whole thing works. Um, but it's logistically very, let's say, complex. 
We have two concrete cores. This is because of earthquake and fire issues and elevators inside. And then this kind of spatial framework that was put up to bring the wooden elements onto site. And now I'm showing you some images how the building relates to the context. Uh, I think that's somehow also the beauty of that project. It really, it has this dialogue to the history of the city. <coughs> a night view here, a view from the archaeology, the shadow, which was, I think, the first idea we had for this project. You see the protection of this grid onto the plaza or onto the stems here. This is a shadow around noon. And then a little later, it looks like this. So even that really makes the place change over time. It's kind of a new sundial, if you like. <clears throat> but then when you see it on the Bing map, it's kind of invisible. You only see the walk and the restaurant. When you're back on the street, this is how it sits there. Um, it has this kind of dialogue with the existing and older um, architectures around it, or some views from neighboring buildings onto the plaza. This is one of my favorite pictures because it explains so well this design process that only could happen in a digital design way, where, as I mentioned before, you have the north, south, east, west orthogonal grid, and you have the invisible envelope. And everything that's inside that envelope is built or materialized, what's outside is not built. But that invisible envelope constantly got you know, massaged and changed in the whole process of designing. And sometimes an element like this is inside that envelope and sometimes it's outside. And you, know, you have these kind of moments where it's just hanging inside while you know, the rest already is kind of outside of that beam or that kind of play that runs through it. So this you wouldn't design if you design it kind of manually, but in this process, there are all these little side effects or these little traces of that process, um, which I think make it so, let's say, transparent in the way it was designed. Then you're up on the restaurant in the Skywalk overlooking the city. Uh, night view, it's open until one o'clock at night. And civilians are, um, can go up there for free, so it's really part of their strolling and um, their everyday routine. Uh, tourists pay one euro thirty, but you get a drink for it um, uh, upstairs. So it really, it does not much barrier really to get up um, and becomes part of um, a lively um, town. <coughs> and the view at night, how it sits there. But now I want to show you how it really became part of the city. Um, you can imagine some really didn't like that project in the center of historic Sevilla downtown especially the ones who organized the Semana Santa, which is the Catholic week before Easter, where you have these processions running through the city. They were really against the project. They said they're killing the whole tradition of Seville. Well, the year after it opened, it was on the cover of their program, so it cannot be so bad. Um, they understood that they're actually um, profiting from it. Then this was Christmas. <coughs> But these are these floats that I'm telling you, that like 20 men carrying this, you can hear their breath, it's really heavy. Um, there's a very strange special music that they're playing um, for these processions. It's very quiet, you hear the music and you hear the breath and that's it. But again, it's communicated immediately to somewhere else. 
this is our stand. So now you know why they like it so much because it's so perfect to see the processions actually from the stairs and um, how they pass by. There's a special music um, that they're playing. There are flamenco festivals on this plaza. Of course, there's a Facebook page or some kind of online presence. <coughs> it works for cheesy Latino pop, some videos that I found on the internet. It also works for hip-hop, supposedly, or rap. I don't know what it is. And more Latino pop, this is in the elevator cabin or on the rooftop, on the walk again. Um, Miss Spain took her pictures there while she was competing for Miss Universe. It didn't help. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is public viewing. This was uh, 2012. Yeah, I think. Your games. Um, there was an action movie with a shooting happening on it. Uh, some car company got inspired by it. This is not there, but I think they must have been inspired, I guess. At least BMW was there, and Jeep was there, and Volkswagen was also there. <laughs> <coughs> uh, then you have some images from you know, social media, uh, like start pages of you know, certain search engines. This is uh, Lonely Planet of Seville. Uh, there is the Gay Pride <coughs> and the Cartoon Festival. So these are fantastic moments when you see that something like this gets already transformed, gets appropriated and starts a new life in a different medium. A um, little later it appeared in a fashion magazine. Uh, it seems to work for cash machines too. Or even supermarkets are calling themselves now. Um, Metropol Parasol is the official name. Now they call themselves Supermercado Parasol. There are tourist souvenirs. <coughs> T-shirts, etc., even street painters. Um, there was some kind of medieval festival. I can't remember what this was. Um, I got this earlier this year, but it's two years old already. An Indian sports show on television. Um, I think got inspired. This was the sports show here. Um, some more start pages of other. This is Bing China from two weeks ago. Um, I think this is Instagram. Some competitions that I found lately uh, where I see some echo happening of that project. Um, this was a sports event. And I think the most mm, yeah, important moment, and this was somehow coinciding also with the opening of the project, was that whole moment. Now, this is from last year when the new king was inaugurated. But this was in 2011, where whole Spain was discussing about the future of their country, the indignados, the revolution that happened in all Spanish uh, capitals or cities. Um, here in Seville, it happened at Metropol Parasol with like, big hearings, big discussions, um, sit-ins, uh, workshops, concerts, um, speeches. Uh, this was the place where people talked about the future of their city. <coughs> future of their lives, actually. And um, this was also the first time I realized that architecture can organize program rather than architecture follows program. In this case, each of the STEM had a certain function. One was the kitchen, one was the Wi-Fi zone, one was kind of the workshop, um, whatever, registration and so forth. So uh, there was a sketch, and I can't find anymore, I took that picture, where each of the STEMs kind of had their little um, function within the demonstrations that happened like three weeks. They were all sitting there and organizing, and, or even longer. And it was also the moment where you were allowed to sleep there. Um, I think a beautiful image where it shows how the city who built this project really blankets 
takes care, envelopes you. Uh, you even feel safe when you sleep um, in your city as part of a renewal and about a discussion how architecture and society can profit when they are willing to have a dialogue. And this is how I would like to finish the talk. You see how it kind of wraps back up to some pattern. This is where it all started uh, with a very kind of personal view or there's a curiosity how we deal with our everyday communication. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.